there. It's Scary Parish. It's Thursday, June 14, 2018. Welcome back to the Ion College Basketball Podcast. I got Matt Norlander here with me, and we decided to spend this entire episode focused completely on the NBA draft for two reasons. Uh, there's really nothing going on in college basketball, and the NBA draft is now just seven days away. It appears DeAndre Ayton will go first overall, and we're going to touch on that uh, at some point. But after DeAndre Ayton going first to the Phoenix Suns, it does appear, at least at this point, that everything else is somewhat up in the air, somewhat because of Michael Porter Jr. So let's start there. I think anybody who listens to a college basketball podcast, especially this one, uh, knows the basics of the story. But if not, I'll walk you through it very quickly. Michael Porter Jr. Uh, is a heralded, for as long as anybody can remember, high-scoring wing, wing 6'10", 6'11", um, incredible aggressive score played on the same EYBL team as Trey Young and was clearly uh, according to everybody the better NBA prospect he projected to be forever a one and done star wherever he went to school he decided to go to Missouri after Conzo Martin hired his father and he was going to play one season with his brother Jonte Porter who reclassified to get into school Um, They did technically play one season of basketball together, but it wasn't much basketball. He only appeared in three games, Michael Porter Jr., and the reason is because he had early season back surgery. He returned in time to appear in the SEC tournament, returned in time to appear in the NCAA tournament, but he was a little bit all over the place, took a lot of shots, didn't make many of them, then announced he was entering the 2018 NBA draft. If you go back a year ago, he was a consensus top two guy in this draft. Everybody thought, maybe not consensus top two, but there were really three players that were in the conversation, according to most. It was DeAndre Aiden, it was Luka Doncic, and it was Michael Porter Jr. Because remember, a year ago at this time, Marvin Bagley wasn't expected to be in the 2018 NBA draft. But you could, even if you throw Bagley in there, reasonably claim that Michael Porter Jr. was a projected top four pick of the 2018 NBA draft, according to everybody. But, again, he had back surgery. And so now doctors from from franchises picking anywhere from two through the lottery are trying to separate fact from fiction and make sense of of what he is, how he is, and if there are any long-term risks to selecting Michael Porter Jr. with the number two pick, number three pick, number four pick, or even the 14th pick. He had a physical conducted by the Chicago Bulls doctors. That information has been released to every NBA team. And all signs are that what is in those documents is encouraging. Um, It is the reason why there are recent reports that Sacramento Kings, as high as number two, are interested. I know for a fact that the Memphis Grizzlies, picking fourth, are also interested. But in the past 24 hours, he has canceled what was supposed to be a second workout in Chicago for reportedly uh, medical reasons. Jonathan Gavoni, our buddy from ESPN, has reported that Michael Porter Jr. suffered a hip strain and that it was so severe that he could not get out of bed recently. Now, um, there is also a report out there that says an MRI was conducted. It came back clean, and that's encouraging, and it's possible that Michael Porter Jr. will reschedule that workout. But again, at this point, uh, we're only seven days away from the NBA draft, and a guy who could have the highest ceiling of anybody is very much a question mark because of A, the back surgery, and B, this most recent injury, a hip strain that caused him to cancel a workout. I really don't think there's anybody in this draft that has a higher or has a more drastic range of where he could go than Michael Porter Jr. If the doctors 
sign off on it. He could go as high as number two to the Sacramento Kings. If they don't, he could maybe fall to the bottom of the lottery or further. Norlander, what would you do? You're running an NBA franchise. Michael Porter Jr. sitting there. You're dealing with all this stuff now. Four minutes, 21 seconds. That is a record for a podcast opening monologue for Mr. Parrish. Extremely thorough and important information to know as we head into the draft, which is a week from us recording. Porter situation, if I was running an NBA team, and what we have to include in the context of this conversation is the information that is certainly available to maybe varying degrees, Parrish, of what is or isn't there with Porter, um, you and I are not explicitly privy to right now. So I think a lot of the stuff that's been reported is, one, accurate, and two, worth concern. I would not take a chance on Michael Porter Jr. in this draft if I was running an NBA team and I had a top-five pick, primarily because I do not believe that the difference between Porter Jr. and the guys that surround him, Luka Doncic, Marvin Bagley, personally, I include Porter Jr.'s best friend, Trey Young, in that conversation. You want to throw Muhammad Bamba. Jaron Jackson, I actually don't think will be as good as Michael Porter Jr. as a pro, but still, uh, he's definitely healthier, and there's a lot to like there. Wendell Carter, I simply believe that if you were to pass on Porter and you were sitting at 3, 4, 5, or 6, and you wanted to get one of those kind of players, it's an okay decision here and now because what I'm seeing more and more of, and it is interesting to see this crop up on social media, our friend Jeff Goodman said this, Doug Gottlieb has said this, others have said this recently, is, and I was hearing this from other people months ago, there are also just some concerns about Michael Porter Jr.'s overall uh, demeanor and how he carried himself as a teammate at Missouri. Some of that stuff maybe will be used, you could say, as a way of of someone on the inside who might might have that third, fourth, or fifth pick wanting to leak that to make sure that no one else goes out and gets him. But I was hearing that long before we even got to this point. So I think there is validity to that criticism. But the bigger question is the hip. You know, Gavoni reports that he could not even get out of bed. That's a terrible sign. And it's flashing flashing echoes in my mind, Parrish, that the same exact thing was happening way at the beginning of his injury with Missouri. And we see that that turned into a back issue, obviously. And this close to the draft, it is worrisome if you're going to cancel a workout a week out, even if the medical report only conducted by the Chicago Bulls, by the way, and then dispersed to the rest of the league, and apparently a number of, of different teams and their respective doctors were okay with that report. I still have some reticence about this. I know you're generally high on Porter. I'm not quite as high, and as we get closer to this, Maybe I wind up being wrong, but you can't deny when you look at the history of the NBA draft and you look at top 10 picks, there are always going to be, at minimum, a couple of guys who just outright flame out are nothing uh, compared to where they were drafted in terms of expectation. And then there are a couple of guys that usually just, okay, they're okay. I kind of get the feeling that's what Porter is going to be. Maybe I wind up being wrong. He does have a lot of potential overall, but for me personally, entering into the draft, because I think there are a lot of other options between guys who stand 6'9 to 7'1", I would take chances on them and let someone else draft Michael Porter Jr. So I've talked about this a lot because of where I live and where the Memphis Grizzlies are are picking because Michael Porter Jr. appears to be in their range, and I know that he is on their radar. They are a franchise that attended his first workout. They were going to go to the second. They have his medicals. Uh, they have done as much background on him as they've done anywhere. And the the way I've broken this down from their perspective, which I think falls right in line with the conversation we're having, is that 
obviously DeAndre Ayton's off the board at four. He's going to go first, but even if he didn't go first, he would go second. He's no possible way available at three or four. So take him, sit him over here. Uh, the way I've described it is if I were the Grizzlies and Luka Doncic or Marvin Bagley dropped to four, which would probably mean somebody selecting Mo Bamba in the top three or Jaron Jackson in the top three, I would take Bagley or Doncic, whichever dropped. And I would prefer Bagley over Doncic. Like I've said many times, I might prefer Bagley over everybody. But in the scenario where the top three picks in some order are Aiton, Doncic, Bagley, that's when I start to take a serious look at Michael Porter. And the updated mock draft that I published last night uh, reflected that. Obviously, this hip strain gives me pause. It would make me reevaluate things because like a week before the draft, somebody reportedly couldn't get out of bed who was coming off back surgery. And that's the guy I'm spending my fourth pick on, particularly when I'm the franchise that last time we had a top five pick, spent it on Hashim to beat when it could have been spent on, say, Steph Curry. And last time uh, and the biggest free agent signing in recent years that you've had is Chandler Parsons, who was coming off a of surgery and was quite clearly damaged goods. Um, I'm less sure that I would go that route now than I was, say, this time yesterday. But I would be picking from a group of players. Again, if Aiton, Doncic, and Bagley are off the board and I'm selecting fourth, I would be picking from a group of players that include the following. Michael Porter, if healthy, Trey Young, um, Jaron Jackson, and Mohamed Bamba. Uh, but again, this, this hip strain report is concerning. I mean, we are a week away from the draft, and Jonathan Gavoni is reporting that Michael Porter Jr. recently could not get out of bed. And I don't know if you read the whole story, but he also um, reported something that I had heard from another source, which is that before Michael worked out for NBA teams last week, he had only been on the court doing basketball stuff for about two weeks that he had shut himself down after the season. Hasn't really been doing basketball stuff, which again is concerning. Why haven't you been on a basketball court? And so um, I, I'm, I'm more probably in line with your way of thinking today than I would have been this time yesterday. Um, I don't know how, if this report is true, you're going to be able to bring yourself. If Mo Bamba, Trey Young, Jaron Jackson, that level guy is also on the board when you're selecting how you draft a guy who's coming off back surgery and a week before the draft could not get out of bed. And let's stop here for a second. Who let that out? The only people, in theory, who should know that Michael Porter Jr. couldn't get out of bed are people working in Michael Porter Jr.'s camp. If you wanted to cancel this workout, there's a bunch of different ways to do it. You can cancel it without explanation. You can cancel it and say, Michael um, is, is, is not feeling well. Michael aggravated a hip. Michael uh, you know, suffered a very minor undisclosed injury. You don't have to say, oh, it's so bad he could not get out of bed. Because that, if true, would scare somebody off. It would scare me off. And we're talking about an explanation coming again, presumably from inside the camp, that could cost him millions of dollars. How do you let it, he couldn't get out of bed? If this is true, how do you let that get out? No idea. Uh, the only way that I think how it gets out is if there are 
particular general managers um, that are really looking for some honest information and they get it and the one wrong person gets it, leaks it to a competing agent, a competing franchise, and that's how it ends up in Gavoni's hands, which, by the way, he should absolutely report that. It is stunning that Parrish, when I read that, I thought, I can't even believe this is a thing so close to the draft and that this detail is emerging. Um, it, it, it almost feels as though there's weird conflicting things happening with Michael Porter Jr. Because in spite of that anyway, Gavoni's story still goes into how his stock is high. And there are teams like Sacramento interested at number two. And I know Sacramento as a franchise has largely been tire fire-esque over the past 15 years. But regardless of that, like the, the fact that he's still involved in there and there are other teams below that that are still considering him, I find it interesting. I don't think Michael Porter Jr.'s resume at this point validates him being selected in the top five when you have other players, again, most of them big men, who are healthy, who played the entire college basketball season, played it well. I would just rather take that route, specifically if I'm a general manager at a franchise and my job potentially truly does rest on how well this 2018 draft pans out. These are things you have to remember, too. It's not just about making the team better. These are people who have to make these evaluations, and if they are wrong, they are out of a job. So why would you put that risk in the hands of Michael Porter Jr.? I, I can't get there. I'm sorry. I just can't. If I had a big board right now, honestly, I, I think I'd have Porter because of all of this. I think I'd have him around 10, 11, or 12 overall. I just do not trust this much uncertainty, him not being on a floor, having the hip injury, coming off the back surgery, him not looking anything like himself in the two and a half games he played for Missouri this year, period. I'd pass. I mean, you're exactly right when it comes to, at some point, the risk does outweigh the reward. Um, the reward is obvious. He has star potential. Uh, he is a perfect combo forward for the modern NBA. 6'10", 6'11", scores at all levels. Um, he's terrific. He's a possible superstar if healthy. And I was willing, quite clearly, to go there with him coming off of back surgery because it's not like he never returned from back surgery. And um, the initial medical reports seem to be encouraging. Okay, let's go. But this, a week before the draft, he can't get out of bed? And he's only been working out on the basketball court for a couple of weeks? What? And if you're a general manager, again, let's just take it back to uh, Memphis. It's picking fourth and, and Bagley, eight, and Doncic off the board in some order. If you take – if you're the same general manager, and it would be the same general manager, Chris Wallace, who – was in charge when you selected Hashim to beat over all of those all-stars that came out of the 2000, whatever it was, eight NBA draft. And then you're also the general manager who was in charge when you signed Chandler Parsons to a $100 million contract and he, like, he can barely move around a basketball court anymore. And then you take Michael Porter Jr., fourth, and anybody below him turns into something that looks like is a future star – while Michael Porter Jr. is out for two months with some sort of back discomfort, like it's it's game set match, you're fired. You cannot do that. And so um, it's a tough deal. It's it's a tough deal because I love what he could be, 
But I think I've gotten to a point where there's just too much. There's just too much there. And again, I don't know how somebody in his camp let this get out. Like it's like, for instance, I hurt my back within the past week. <laughs> I mean, bad. Like I don't, I, I don't mean to my... laugh, but cause I actually tweaked mine last week and it's just ridiculous. Aging is terrible. I mean, yeah, my back injury is just being nothing more than a, a guy in his forties. Like I reached, I was playing with my one year old and like, I just felt it go. Then it got a little better then it got worse and it's getting better now. But like if you asked me to go out and swing a golf club right now, I could not do it. My back still hurts to that degree. There was a time on, I don't know, Tuesday morning probably, where I had trouble getting out of bed. But eventually you can get out of bed. I don't care how bad your hips hurt, your backs hurt. You can't. The report here, this is my point, it's he could not get out of bed, which I don't even think is technically true. Right. I bet you, I bet you he could get out of bed. It just hurt like hell. Why would somebody let that get out that he couldn't get out of bed? Unless, and Jonathan Wasserman pointed this out while prefacing it with, I trust Jonathan Gavoni. But the only reason to make it sound this bad is if you're trying to scare a team into not taking him because you actually want him to drop to another team. But even that's a little too conspiracy uh, uh, theory-ish for me. Like I don't – there's a lot of ways to do that. Just don't give the medicals to the Kings and they don't take him. Um, but that, that's an alternative theory working on social media right now. But I, I, again, allowing it to get out that he could not get even get out of bed is like a million dollar leak. Millions of dollars leak. And whoever in that camp let that get out, assuming it's true. I mean, that person has made a colossal mistake because nobody was higher on Michael Porter Jr. than me this time yesterday. And now I'm sitting here talking to you saying, I don't know if I can go there now. It's, it's, it's a mess. Yeah, it's, As for his yeah. personality, how concerned would you be about that? Because you're exactly right. That is something that is, is, has been whispered about. I've had NBA people ask me. What do you know about him as a person? And it's wild because like in the mid-80s when you were evaluating NBA prospects, you were really just trying to find out whether they had a Coke problem or not. Like does he have a Coke problem or not? No? Okay, cool. Now it's not even like is he a good guy, bad guy? You know, is he a good guy, you know, a legal gun owner? It's is he a weird guy? Is he a good guy, bad guy, weird guy, different guy? And I remember – reading one of the reasons the Browns became enamored with Baker Mayfield in advance of the NFL draft is because they loved the way his teammates responded and reacted to him. They loved the way he had total control of that locker room and he could make guys, forgive me for the cliche, uh, run through walls. And Michael Porter Jr. seems to have the opposite reputation right now. But you know who else had that opposite reputation? Uh, really wasn't a part of a team, uh, didn't seem to, to, to get close with his teammates, kind of a different dude, Ben Simmons. And like, I'd take Ben Simmons on my team right now. Looks like, uh, looks like he's going to be great. And so I'm not that concerned with the personality stuff, even though it is, it is out there. Are you concerned with that? Um, I think maybe, I guess just a little bit, uh, if you can play, you can play. And if you can overcome that, it's important. I think, I think at the NBA level, um, general managers and coaches have a certain amount of 
concern about how a locker room can be managed, but most particularly when it comes to how your top three or four players uh, either get along with each other or, or keep the locker room cohesive. I think that stuff does matter over the course of a season. When you're a rookie, it really probably doesn't have almost anything to do with anything. But as you get deeper into your career, three, four, five, six years in, maybe it can have more of an impact. Um, and just generally speaking, and I'm not saying Michael Porter Jr. Um, is a jerk because uh, I don't believe that to be true. But if he is, uh, do you want to have that situation where he winds up being a top three player on your roster and he's just a jerk and you've got to deal with that on a day-in, day-out basis where you have an evaluation of a similar player and it just comes back flying colors you just rather would live with that in your franchise overall. So I think that's how it can impact him overall. Uh, we'll see. But to me, I just I couldn't help but notice that that is starting to get out a little bit more as well. And it's not, it's not a new thing with him in particular. And he's not necessarily the only prospect that that would stick with uh, in this particular draft. Every draft is going to have players projected in the first round, and a few of them are just not going to have – you know, overwhelmingly, glowingly, uh, you know, positive reviews with every single person that they speak to on background or when they go through the interview process. So it's just another thing being used against Porter. I'm pretty fascinated with where he's going to go. And by the time we get to a week from now, as we're heading into just hours before the draft starts, I'll be interested to see what the feeling is on him overall. If people are going to say, okay, he's kind of slotted into that four spot. That's where we think he's going to go. Or if it's a complete guess, and it could be anywhere from 4 to 12. Uh, I think he obviously has as much intrigue behind him as anyone now because of all this. And the only person that might be uh, competing with that is Trey Young just because it's Trey Young. And people want to see what team wants to take the chance on him. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I think Michael Porter Jr. now becomes the most interesting prospect in this draft. He's got uh, you know the widest range. And it'll be fascinating to see what happens in the next seven days. Is he going to reschedule this workout? How does he look in that workout? Can he convince NBA franchises, decision makers, that, yes, he's had some medical issues, but they're not going to be long-term problems? If so, like I said, he's a top three or four talent in this draft. But if not, you cannot spend a top three or four pick uh, on him. Let's move on. Um, like I mentioned earlier, DeAndre Ayton seems uh, all but guaranteed to be the number one pick in the 2018 NBA draft. I know that they've worked out Phoenix has other people and they haven't made it clear that he's the guy. There is nobody reporting definitively that the Suns have settled on, on Deandre Ayton, but all indications are that's the route they're going. Do you agree with them? Is, is that what you would do if you were picking first? It is Parrish. at this point. I don't know. I, I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty convinced that Aiton's got to be the guy here. Um, not that – like, it would not – I want to repeat this because I wrote this and I had a few people uh, kind of lash back at me. I'm telling you, it would not surprise me if Marvin Bagley III went first uh, in the NBA draft. It wouldn't, and it's not a terrible decision if that happens, in my opinion, because I actually think that Aiton and Bagley, it's not going to be, for injury or otherwise, a Odin, an Odin-Durant situation. I think they both are going to have careers that are pretty freaking good at the NBA level, and when you get a decade from now, um, I don't think you'll be able to definitively say, oh my gosh, Phoenix, they made a terrible decision picking Aiton instead of Bagley or, or vice versa. But given his size, his skill, and my belief that Aiton will grow to be a better defender than Bagley at the pro level. I just, I'm just more comfortable with it, and that's fine. Like, it's always great when we've got 
a true toss-up, a true unknown at the number one spot, but it seems to be that this is what it is. And if that's the case, that's totally fine. He's, it's, it's hard not to go with him in that spot. But whereas in some previous years you've had maybe a number one pick that's had a little bit of separation from the rest of the group, I, the best way I can phrase this is Aiton is the number one player on my big board. I think he's deserving to go to number one. I think he would be a really good fit in Phoenix. But I still generally cluster him in with Bagley, Doncic. I don't think Bamba's that far behind because I think he's going to grow into a really good offensive player. And defensively, he's the best of all of them. Jaron Jackson maybe a little bit there, Trey Young as well. So I actually think that the top of this draft has a lot of players with a lot of intrigue. Again, at least two of them are are not going to be all that good. It's just the odds show it. But that's where I am overall with Aiton. I mostly agree with you. Uh, where I would disagree is I, I will be surprised if Marvin Bagley is the first pick in this NBA draft. I, I'm not saying that I wouldn't consider it if I were picking first. I would consider it if I were picking first, and I might do it if I were picking first. But at this point, I'll be shocked if Aiton's not the first guy uh, selected. But I don't think it's nearly, and I think you and I agree on this, as clear-cut as most others seem to think. And it is worth noting that because I think this doesn't get discussed enough as the draft approaches almost every year. Um, I don't know whether prospects actually start to carve out these very clear re- um, reputations or if groupthink settles in. I think it's probably a combination of the two, but we get to a point where people speak in absolutes. Like if I were to go on some debate show with, five other people who have published mock drafts and i'd say i just would not take deandre ayton first overall like he just he is not going to be the best player from this draft i don't care that he's a physical specimen i don't care that he was the pac-12 player of the year i don't care what you guys think i would not take him first overall i would immediately be called stupid they go what are you talking about he's clear-cut the best prospect in this draft and and i and and i would just i would be people would tell me i don't know what i'm talking about And, and Perhaps I don't. But if you go back and look at, obviously, you know, drafts in general, but even the number one pick, which in most years, almost everybody agrees on who it ought to be. They're wrong. They're wrong. More often than not. It's about 50-50 over the past 20 years, I think, Parrish. Yeah. Yeah, Like, the, the hit or miss rate on this is not great. And so... People tend to, to, to leave so little wiggle room at the top of drafts, and yet if you pay attention to history, you know, yeah, there's, there's the times when it's a no-brainer. LeBron James is in 2003. That's a no-brainer, and it was obviously the right pick. Uh, Anthony Davis, 2012, no-brainer, and it was obviously the right pick. But in, 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 like you said, I don't have it right in front of me, but I saw somebody tweet a graphic yesterday. Um. More often than not, or like right, or, or just as often as not, I should say, even the number one pick in the draft is just wrong, and that's why I refuse to jump on board with the idea that it's got to be DeAndre Ayton. It it will be DeAndre Ayton, but I would, if I were in you know in control of the first pick in this draft, I would be giving serious consideration to to Marvin Bagley as well. Because, you know, when he was 15, he was considered the best 15-year-old prospect in the world. 
Same thing throughout his high school career. You know, when he reclassified, he became the number one prospect in the class of 2017, according to most recruiting analysts. And then he went out and, like, was awesome. 21 points, 11 rebounds, shot about 40% from three-point range, ACC Player of the Year. So he did it in a, in a great league for a great team and first-team All-American. And now it's like, no way he could go number one. What? Well, what did he do to change everybody's mind? Or what did Aiton do to change everybody's mind? Because Aiton was awesome, but no more awesome in college than, than Marvin Bagley. I think if you want to side with Aiton, which, let me be clear, is very reasonable, you do so because he's more physically imposing. He's a little taller, wingspan's a little better, probably a little more of a rim protector, might actually have um, long-term a, a better skill set. Maybe, but, but Bagley's got an incredible motor. He's an incredible athlete. And I'm just not as convinced as others that that he has got to go in the two to four range as opposed to be a serious contender for the number one spot. I agree. So I think we're on the same uh, page with with thinking that Aiton and Bagley, even though there's a chance that one of them or both of them won't pan out, we both think that they're going to be really successful NBA players. I would say they're both going to be multi-time all-stars. I think that's going to be the case. But to circle back to what we talked about earlier, historically, Parrish, if you even just take the top 10 picks in a given draft, um, there will be busts. There will be guys that, uh, that flame out. There will be guys that will be just okay. So I think it's only fair to hold our feet to the fire. I'll give you two. And what's weird is I do feel, and I hope I'm not being prisoner of the moment with this, and I wonder if you feel or if, if people that really follow this, college hoops fans and NBA fans, NBA draft fans, might feel the same or differently. To me, this top 10, well, I do not think it's like an all-time pre-draft top 10. I think it's fairly strong. I think it's pretty close. Not as good, but pretty close to last year. I look at this, and I, and I just don't see as many potential um, flameouts as in a normal given year. I say that, wake me in two years, and I'll, I'll obviously be proven wrong. But if I were to pick two, mm-hmm. and I guess— you, let, let, that, you take two projected top 10 picks— that you think are most likely to flame out or just not even be close to worthy of where they were selected, and I'll do the same. Okay, so let me – I'm going to give more than 10 because the 10 – like so basically if you want to count down reasonable, I think these are the reasonable top 10 picks, and if we get a shock, hey, that's part of the fun of draft night, but I think you could count down from Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Kevin Knox, Lonnie Walker, Miles Bridges – Mikhail Bridges, and then you really get into the next nine, who I think are almost guaranteed to go in the top ten. Sexton, Colin Sexton, um, Wendell Carter, Michael Porter Jr., Trey Young, Mohamed Bamba, Jaron Jackson Jr., Marvin Bagley III, Luka Doncic, and DeAndre Ayton. My two, I say Colin Sexton. I, I think he is going to be a backup-level point guard who does not score well and is a very streaky player and just does not wind up having a stat line or a level of importance in the NBA that validates being a top 10 pick. That's my forecast on, on Sexton. I was never overly smitten with him uh, as uh, in his first year and his only year at Alabama. Um, I think it's validated to have him in the top 15 on a big board totally, but that's different from what we think he'll actually project out to be. And I specifically, if like he goes to the Knicks, that would be a disaster. Um, I just don't think that would work. And then the other one, we talked about this a little bit, so I don't want to repeat too much, but man, I, I just 
don't think Jaron Jackson is going to wind up being this game-changing center. I I don't know. I I don't I don't have him on my big board top five. Um, he you could even make the argument that he was misused by Tom Izzo to a certain degree at Michigan State. If you want, that's fine. His per forty numbers are nice. His per game numbers weren't great, but that's not everything. I just think he's going to be okay. Like, and I think because of his size. Uh, and he's got a natural skill level. I think he'll stick in the league, but I don't think it's validated picking him in the top five overall. So of all the guys I mentioned, those are my two most likely, and I'll just scoot in real quick. It almost seems like a cop-out. Shea Gilgis-Alexander would be the other one, but that almost feels like too easy of an answer um, because he's not projected as like this surefire top ten pick, and he kind of came um, – from nowhere to be in this draft position. No one thought he would be there three months ago. But I could see a situation where he's just totally just a guy, whatever, at the NBA level. But the two guys I mentioned are, are my two most likely candidates. Do you have disagreements? And if so, who? I first think you're right that the the top nine guys in this draft, in some order, feel like they're about the first nine guys. And, you know, to to – to again detail them, it's DeAndre Ayton, Marvin Bagley, Luka Doncic, Michael Porter, Jaron Jackson, Muhammad Bamba, Trey Young, Wendell Carter, Colin Sexton. Obviously, the one that could drop out of that nine is Michael Porter for medical reasons. But I do feel like those nine are those those nine guys in some order are going to be in the top ten or eleven. And so I'll just focus on that group. The obvious answer to which one will end up being a bad pick. It could be Michael Porter for the reasons we spent 20 minutes talking about at the top of this podcast. His body could just fail him. And then it's not one of those deals where somebody's body fails them, but you had no reason to think it would. Like there's plenty of reasons to think that it might. And you took him anyway, and now you're in a bad spot, probably fired. Um, Trey Young, I like him, and I lean toward him being really good. But I can also see it where he's just – you know, is 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 physically overwhelmed in that league. I could I could see where we look up and go, you know what? People his size don't usually become stars. Just because Steph did it doesn't mean anybody everybody else, you know, who can like make shots and and create shots is is going to be able to do it. I, I'm betting on him, but I can imagine I can envision a scenario where it doesn't work. But the the main guy, and you and I are on the same page. It's Jaron Jackson. I I'd, I'm not saying I don't get it. When people talk about he could be the second best player, he could be uh, the second player picked in this draft and could be the best player from this draft. I'm not saying I don't get it. I understand it. He is 6'11", uh, can switch everything, real rim protector, um, block rate was excellent, uh, You know, it, it can face up and knock down perimeter jumpers which is something that's of great value from bigs more so than probably ever in the history of the NBA. I got it. The problem is he's never been a great player. There has never been a time in his life where anybody thought he was a better prospect than Mohamed Bobma or Marvin Bagley or DeAndre Ayton. Never, not once. And then he went to college, and he's just a guy. He played 21 minutes a game. And I know you can find highlights where you go, woo boy, look at what he just did there. Dribbles left, gets into the lane, pull-up jumper. But it's just a highlight. You can find highlights of anybody. Show me dudes who are awesome basketball players. Not awesome prospects, awesome basketball players. Marvin Bagley has forever been and wasn't his one year at Duke. DeAndre Ayton has forever been 
and was in his one year at Arizona. Wendell Carter, really good. Trey Young, really good. Jaron Jackson, just a guy that, for whatever reason, only played 21 minutes a game at Michigan State. Stunk in the NCAA tournament against Syracuse. Total non-factor. You want to blame it on Tom Izzo? Okay. But, you know, people will argue Marvin Bagley was misused. Or guys are Awesome players tend to be awesome, almost regardless of how they're used. And it, it, it's hard for me to get over the fact that he was not awesome in college. And yet people, some people now perceive him to be a better prospect than some guys that he's never been considered better than and who he clearly didn't outperform in a 35 to 40 game sample size of college basketball games. You know, the, the, I understand the physical tools and, and why you can sort of look real closely and see the possibility for stardom. But there's a long history in this league of guys who look amazing, who's, who, who measure the right way, run the right way, move the right way, jump the right way. But for whatever reason, they ain't great players. They're great prospects, but they ain't great players. And I would, and I might just be wrong, for the same reasons people were wrong about Donovan Mitchell last year, for the same reasons people seem to have been wrong about Markel Fultz. This ain't easy for me, for you, and for the 30 people running the franchises. People are wrong every year. I might be wrong, but I'll bet on him not becoming a great player. And the reason is because he's never been a great player, not thought of like some of these other guys that are mentioned in the top five. Yeah, I'll just tag this with the reason why he, there's still a lot of momentum around him is, you know, he is an off the bus, impressive, like, right. look, I mean, he just, he's six eleven. he's big, he's long, he's nimble, and he's also really young, um, Younger than all the other bigs we've talked about. And so with that, when they see what – when scouts and general managers see what he is now, there is the potential, as this is the case with every NBA draft, just you will draft on potential specifically and almost exclusively so much with one-and-done players because Marvin Bagley uh, and Trey Young and to an extent DeAndre Ayton are, are kind of exceptions just in how productive they were. And I would, I would say Ayton wasn't even as overall as – uh, valuable or as productive as Bagley, and certainly not uh, like Trey Young, who was historic and unprecedented in what he did. You aren't getting that with Jackson, so we're on the same page there. Um, so, so we'll wait and see. I, he's a lock to go top five, I think, but for me personally, he is not in my top five. Let's go now to projected non-lottery picks who you think will be better than where they're picked. In other words, I'll define it this way. Guy who is projected by most at this moment to be selected outside of the lottery. So 15 or lower. You can even pull it from your mock draft if you want. I'll pull it from mine. Projected to be picked 15th or lower. And yet, when we look up in two years, that person will be a top 10 player from the 2018 NBA draft. Yeah. You got I'm, one or two? I'm going to give I'm going to just let me have a little fun. I'll be quick with this. I'll give you three. Um, uh, 15 or lower outside, because and I like that we're doing this, because I've already mentioned the fact that I think Mikhail Bridges and Lonnie Walker have tremendous chances at being immediate impact players next year in the NBA draft and flirting with that Donovan Mitchell um, value, but obviously not replicating what he did overall. Uh, so beyond, beyond that, um, I don't love a lot of, just in terms of, I guess really boosting as an NBA player. I don't love a lot of the the future potential of guys in the fifteen to twenty range. Generally speaking, um, I think 
I think my first nominee would be Aaron Holiday out of UCLA, um, in part because the he averaged like twenty points, six assists, uh, a few boards, and that the the stat line he put up, and I don't have it in front of me, um, so I can't recite it exactly, but he did something at UCLA that had not been done since Reggie Miller, and he took a backseat. Two seasons ago, when Lonzo Ball came in, he came off the bench. I happen to think, and he's also got the DNA, he's got the genetics um, with Drew Drew being a top 20 play, paid player in the league right now. I, I think that he will wind up being a top 10 to 12 player in this draft overall. So Aaron Holiday is my first. Um, number two, I, I, I think it's Jalen Brunson, um, who is going to be anywhere in that Unless there's a team that's totally sandbagging it right now, he's going to be anywhere in that 27 to 34 range. He's awesome, Parrish. Like, there are some players when I watch them, and I know that the col- what you do in college with some players and the skills you have in college, they don't always translate, and that's why you don't see the top college scorers being drafted in the top 10, and sometimes top college scorers being nowhere even near the draft. But there are some dudes who have just a certain intelligence, savviness, and winning resume about them, I, I can't deny Jalen Brunson. He's been awesome. He should be nowhere near the second round, in my opinion. He should be going anywhere from, say, 16 to 22 or 23 overall. I think he's that good. I know he's not as fast or athletic as other players in this draft. I think he's going to be really, really good. I'm very much in on him. And then if you fall deeper into the second round, just to kind of really go down, you know, deep... I don't know. I th- I think Landry Shamit's got a, sh- a shot at being fairly good, borderline a starting level point guard in three to four years because of his size. Because he was switched positions, Parrish. You know, Greg Marshall moved him to point guard, and he excelled. And I know that the league he played in wasn't even an absolute top level league in college basketball. I happen to think that he's going to do well for himself and very much outplay his draft position if he gets taken. 44th, 46th, 49th. I think he winds up being clearly a top 30 player in this draft. Those are my three nominees. Who do you got? Okay. Um, first, I think you're right about Brunson and Shamit. I don't think either will be a top 10 player from this draft, but I do think both are going to end up being better than wherever it is. There, but in the ways that I'll describe, a lot of Fred Van Vliet in, in, in this way. Fred Van Vliet is not a great athlete. He is not a physically imposing person, not coming out of college, the greatest shooter in the world, didn't do any of the things, didn't didn't check any of the boxes that people want to check when you're talking about a modern NBA point guard. So he went undrafted. And then, of course, he gets into summer league and he gets into a training camp and the Raptors actually sign him to a guaranteed contract. And then this year he's the backup point guard for the team that won more games than any other team in the Eastern Conference. I think it was a 62-win Toronto Raptors team. And he is a finalist for six men of the year. What did we find out? He just knows how to play. And that's it. Like, he's not going to wow you in a workout. He's not going to test better than all sorts of other unemployed point guards in this world, or at least non-NBA point guards in the world. He ain't as big. He ain't as fast. He ain't as quick. He ain't any of those things. But he knows how to play. That's the Fred Van Vliet story. I think it could also be the Jalen Brunson story. He ain't going to test well. He didn't test well. He's not the quickest. He's not the fastest. He's not the tallest. He's not the most athletic. 
He'll find you'll look up next February and he'll just be playing meaningful minutes for somebody in the NBA and playing them well. I think he's going to be better than wherever he picks. Not necessarily a top 10 guy, but he'll be better than wherever he's picked. My guys who are projected outside of the lottery, but I think could end up in three years being top 10 players who came out of this draft. Uh, one is Dante DiVincenzo. I mean, 6'5 athlete who shot better than 40% from three-point range. Part of a winning culture. Understood his role, which I think is important for an NBA player. Like, if you can be as talented as he is, you know, a first-round pick who embraced being a six-man in college, that suggests you can embrace whatever role is thrust upon you in the NBA. Comes from a great culture. Athlete. Can shoot it. Plays hard. Knows how to play. I like him. Another one's Kyrie Thomas, and, and another one's Josh Okoge. And they're both for the exact same reasons. 6'3", six, 6'4", six, athletes, 6'10", six, 6'11", six, foot wingspans, can reasonably guard at least three positions, can switch everything on the perimeter, uh, both shot around 40% from three-point range with a large sample size in college. I think Kyrie was around 41%. Okoge at Georgia Tech was around 38%. Neither were heralded guys coming out of high school. Neither um, played on consensus top 10 teams that went on deep runs in the NCAA tournament. So they probably weren't as visible as, you know, a lot of the other prospects that that we're discussing. But both were incredibly productive Division I players for good teams, at least in Akogi's first year, a good NIT team at Georgia Tech. And, you know, in a league that is starting to be more and more dominated by perimeter players, you need guys that can be disruptive on the perimeter and also on the offensive end of the court, knock down open shots. And I think Akogi and Kyrie Thomas both um, both qualify. Uh, neither will go in the lottery, I don't think. I've got both going higher than most seem to believe. But if we looked up in one of them, if not both of them were considered top 10 players from this draft someday – that wouldn't be the most shocking thing to me. So you've got two guys. Okoge, I'm, I'm totally – he's one of like the five or six players in this draft, GP, like a surefire top 35 guy that uh, – it's just a mystery to me. I can't tell you if I think he's going to be good or not. I don't know. I just don't have an answer. Um, and I did not see enough of him at Tech. I've seen him I've, – I've honestly probably watched him play – Five games ever, so I just don't have enough there. Um, but t- tested very well. I mean, right. a lot of really positive stuff coming out of him in May. Um, uh, he's just he's a he's a question mark for me. But you mentioned Divincenzo, and you mentioned Kyrie Thomas. So I had a piece go up uh, at CBSSports.com on Thursday about guys who were lowly rated in high school that have turned that reality into being surefire or reasonable projections as first-round picks. And the timelines vary. Um, you've got one one-and-done player in Zaire Smith out of Texas Tech, and you've got one player who needed an entire college career in all four seasons to get this done, and that's Javon Carter, who probably won't go in the first round but still is in the discussion there. It's fair to say that where he lands on numerous teams' big boards would warrant him being uh, debated as a late first-round pick. You know, who knows if any of those pl- of these players are going to wind up sticking in the NBA, but that's not the point. These are awesome stories. When you are not on a ma- – sometimes you are on a major team. Like Dante DiVincenzo is the highest-rated player of the seven I mentioned, and yet none of them – like none of them were rated uh, top 100 or anything like that. DiVincenzo was in the 120s. 
Kyrie Thomas, the lowest rated player of all of them, um, and really only wound up going to Creighton because he was relatively local. And uh, Greg McDermott and his staff were in on him early. Um, he went to prep school. Clemson tried to get in late. But he really wasn't much of a known commodity. And this is why I love the draft. It's honestly why I get really intrigued with covering college basketball at various stages of, of players' careers or throughout seasons because you do get these stories. And I think it's so fun and it's so awesome. And Kyrie Thomas could go from a guy who almost no one knew about, generally speaking, like I went to Evan Daniels, Brian Snow. They never saw him play. Like So right. when you are getting people that are covering the sport, and that's not a knock against them. They're trying to cover hundreds and hundreds of guys and see all these guys and get you know uh, respected and accurate scouting reports on these guys. There are going to be guys that slip through the cracks. So Kyrie Thomas goes from that to being a guy who uh, Greg McDermott said was not confident whatsoever, took way too many chances as a freshman, needed a lot of confidence, got a big, got a big boost, and now uh, he has no business falling out of the first round, in my opinion. I think he, I think he should and will go in the, in the first round overall. It's just, it's an awesome turn. He was ranked 326th in the class of 2015, and the next lowest rated player to that parish, Jerome Robinson out of Boston College, he might wind up having. The biggest jump overall, because he was ranked 308 in that same class, talked with his coach Jim Christian, was definitely you know, just a player you had to go out of your way to see. He played for an AAU team that was uh, operated by David West's brother, who runs the Golden State Warriors. And in fact, Jerome Robinson, I didn't know this until Christian told me, he played on the same high school team as Devontae Graham, but he is now really boosting his stock in like a serious way. Whereas like a couple months ago, Jerome Robinson, who had a very good year at Boston College, and Boston College finally had a a respectable season for the first time under Christian, he was seen in that 35 to 50 range. And now there's serious momentum about this guy being a top 20 pick. So imagine that. Imagine going from being the 308th ranked player in your high school class to becoming a top 20 NBA pick. I think it's awesome. Just real quick to wrap up the other guys on the list. Javon Carter, 299 in the class of 2014. His general growth is awesome at West Virginia. And it really speaks to both him and Bob Huggins that he got him in the position to be drafted. He's absolutely earned it. Um, Elsewhere on the list, Zaire Smith out of Texas Tech was 194 in the class of 2017. Um, You have Melvin Frazier who went to Tulane, 182 in the class of 2015. Now, no one really saw much of him. Have to credit Mike Dunleavy for taking that job and really building Frazier into an NBA prospect. His athletic ability is going to get him drafted. And then Jacob Evans, who of all the guys, uh, along with DiVincenzo, but Jacob Evans, to me, Parrish is fascinating because when I watched Cincinnati play, and this goes against what we mentioned with Brunson, right? When I watched Cincinnati play, and I probably watched Cincinnati play you know, I don't know what this says about me other than I try and do my job, but I probably watched Cincinnati play 25 times in the past two years, if not more than that. And easily, I was talking with the coaching staff, easily in more than half of those games, Jacob Evans did not look like the best Bearcat on the floor and sometimes didn't even look like a top two player on the floor. But NBA evaluators seeing him, one, he passes all the interviews with flying colors, but he has rebuilt his body. He's a firm and true 6'6". Wants to play man-to-man defense, never gets lost on defense, takes smart shots, and isn't a selfish player. So the skills that he developed and cultivated over the past two years, specifically at Cincinnati, you know, scouts see that as a way of, okay, here's a guy that 
we can plug into our system. He's never going to be a top three player on our roster, but we're never going to have to worry about him. He's going to want to do the things that need to be done. And so those are the seven players that are really the Cinderella stories of this draft, and all of them are going to get picked. And in a, in a way, I think all of them will probably savor that night as much, if not more so, than anyone else that's get drafted. Yeah, they're all uh, amazing stories. Um, you know, some of these guys that are going to hear their names called, it's like it's just it's just been a matter of time. You know, Marvin Bagley, DeAndre Ayton, Mo Bamba, they were all, for as long as people have been paying attention to them, they were always headed for the night that they're going to have next Thursday night. But for these guys, the odds were stacked against them as they entered college. And for them to now be in a position to not only fulfill a dream, but also like become multimillionaires is like it just incredible stuff. And it is among um, my favorite parts of, of the NBA draft. But let's be clear. There are guys who spend multiple years in college, two, three, four, uh, who were unheralded coming out of high school and then turn into first round or second round guaranteed guys all the time. No, Steph Curry is one. Uh, Frank Kaminsky was another. You know, we've had like literally national player of the years um, check that box. To me, the one that is insane is Zaire Smith because that's the rare unheralded one and done guy. That's somebody who was a sub-100 prospect, as you noted, coming out of high school and is now projected by some to go in the top 20 after one year of college. That's rare stuff. You know, we get a totally off the radar coming out of high school to lottery pick guy all the time after that guy spends two years or three years or four years in college. But totally off the radar to, you know, top 20 pick after one season, a one-and-done guy? That's 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 very rare slash incredible. And I saw our, our friend Sam Vecini tweet earlier, you know, in 2016, Zaire Smith was the fourth leading scorer for his EYBL team. And now he's going to be a, a first round draft pick after one year of college. So, um, yeah, like, I don't know how that happened. And I don't know that he's guaranteed to be anything other than a first round draft pick next Thursday. But still a pretty remarkable story. And Norlander uh, detailed those those guys over uh, on the website. So if you haven't checked that out yet, go to cbssports.com. That's cbssports.com. Or, of course, you can uh, check his Twitter feed at Matt Norlander. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry M.F. and Teagle, the legend. And uh, I appreciate you guys being here. And those of you who subscribe to the Island College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcasts, special shouts to you. Please, if you haven't done it, go do it. Rate it favorably. Five stars with nice comments and we will be back. Uh, let's just count on after the NBA draft uh, next week's a weird week for me. I'm traveling Sunday to New York to do NBA draft shows, CBS sports network on Monday, fly back home Tuesday. Then on Wednesday, flying to Fort Lauderdale, we'll be doing a NBA draft live CBS sports HQ show on Thursday night and then traveling again on Friday. So I'll be on airplanes Sunday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday. Hmm. But we will figure out some time uh, to talk. And, you know, at the at the latest, let's just because I think I landed a reasonable time next Friday at the latest um, Friday afternoon. We could maybe even do it late Thursday after the draft. But we will probably use the next episode of the Island College Basketball podcast to, to look back at the NBA draft because these are guys that we have spent literally years in some cases talking about on this podcast we can say our goodbyes to them 
um, look back at the NBA draft and then we'll get focused, you know, as we head into the or get closer to the July evaluation period, uh, start focusing on uh, college basketball once again. But we'll get back to you uh, when we know um, what the schedules look like. In the meantime, uh, the best way to ensure you don't miss anything, go subscribe to the Iron College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcasts. Like I said, we're going to talk to you again real soon next week at some point. Till then. Bye.